You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is On Principal Challenges Jewish Education. I'm here again, pleasantly surprised, with Rabbi Shmuel's case, uh, my colleague, good friend, Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva of Newark, a person whose educational experience is, is long and deep. Uh, and I know of Shmuel that uh, whenever something that, that you've mentioned to me uh, is, is, is if, if not a problem waiting to happen, uh, it, it's, it's a problem that perhaps is already here. And based on demographics and based on what we know is, is occurring just in terms of the general society, it's going to be rearing its head even more. And I think it's something that, that, that you wanted to address. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for that introduction. And uh, uh, the issue, I think, is, uh, is one that I, I deal with every year as a new uh, group of Talmidim come into the yeshiva. And I have to consistently re-educate them as to what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in terms of racial comments and jokes and really attitudes. And uh, it's, I've been doing this for, Baruch Hashem, the yeshiva's been here for 20 years. And I could say that in 20 years, it's consistent. Every year, there's at least one or two of the group that comes in that have seriously racist attitudes. And the rest of them pretty much go along with it. And uh, it, it becomes a re-education process because as they learn what I'm not going to accept. And I, I'm very uh, clear about it. Uh, when they make a joke or when they say something, I will explain to them why it's a problem and, and, and what's wrong with it. But it's clear to me that this is coming from somewhere. And like, let's, I'm sure you had the same experience. When I was in yeshiva, Rebbeim made black jokes, all the Schwarzer jokes, all the time. A hundred percent. When I uh, came to my yeshiva, to Nehru Yisrael, of course, and you were at that point, we didn't know each other, but we were both in the same place. There was some, there might have been some mental sense that my friend was out there somewhere, five years younger than me, struggling with his own. When I was in yeshiva and i had come from uh from the steep south not the deep south but memphis is definitely a very much a southern city but a very integrated city and i had actually um been raised in a neighborhood that was different than you know the baltimore of your youth where the line of demarcation between black and white was very clear and it was dangerous i actually grew up in a neighborhood that was a jewish neighborhood that was now 99 black and we were just waiting to get out. And I was able to make friends with all the, the, the Southern Black families that had moved into the homes of my former, my, my former neighbors, my former Jewish neighbors. I was used to going to those homes to find friends. So even as, as a 10-year-old child, I went back to those places and knocked on the door and said, hey, my, you know, my old friends used to live here. Maybe we could be friends. So when I came to yeshiva as a 13-year-old boy, I was very shocked by the attitudes of my Baltimore Rosh Yeshivas. And well, I would say more much my teachers, my rabbeim. Um, and I wouldn't call it an, indoctrin- an indoctrination in racist feelings, but the message was very, very clear that that the African-Americans in those urban areas represented the worst aspect of the guy, the one that we had to be 
we had to fear and we had to realize was 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 ugly and terrible and we need to do whatever we can and of course let, let's put let's put in perspective that there were there were in that period of the early 60s and mid 60s going into close to uh, you know 1970 i think when the yeshiva finally moved or 68 when the yeshiva moved her to to its present location there had been uh, brutal attacks on the yeshiva students and that generated at least within you know the, the rabbeim an attitude that this is a a divide that who that can never be uh really healed at all i think just i think that's part of what what i experienced um but, but let me just tell you just one other thing about just to, to people should realize that you know i both you and i have as part of the yeshiva of newark dealt with these students and we realized that as you say they come many of them came from homes not like where i came from which was in an integrated community out of town they came from insular communities Hasidic communities where there was this us against them realizing who the guy for sure but the black is the it's like the klipa the, the worst klipa tmeya of the guy and I think that was something that something that, that we, we both saw. I'll tell you, interestingly, when I first came to the yeshiva, and this isn't about me, but when I first came to the yeshiva, um, if you remember, I came to, to teach in the secular studies department. That was my role. And one of the things that I taught was a course in sociology and a course in African-American cinema. Those were two courses that our yeshiva and when, when the history of the yeshiva of Newark is written, I think they will remember that there were courses in these subjects. So I, I so I, I think that I encountered it, and we were able to have discussions about this because this was the subject matter that was being taught. And I know again in, in your role, which was in the Mude Kodesh department. There, it's, you really had to, um, you know, it, it, it reared its head, in, 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 I think, in a more insidious way. Because I think when you discuss it, like when I was doing African-American cinema, and they were seeing films made by Black filmmakers, and especially film, films like The Pawnbroker and other films where the Jewish and African-American uh, um, experience was being connected to each other, there, I think some positivity developed, but I think within the box of pure Jewish education, that's where I think the, the, the problems come up when you have this sort of attitude. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a lot to reply to there, but I, I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> I, that's my fault. <laughs> it's okay. The, the, uh, uh, my, my approach would be as follows. So yes, I mean, we both grew up hearing these jokes and comments and really racist uh, attitudes from Rebbeim and people we looked up to, it always bothered me, I have to say. Uh, and I know that we, we've talked about this before, that you shared that distaste for it. And, and um, uh, when, we, when it comes to yeshivas, though, like, yeah, we did something really innovative. I mean, I'd like to know if there's another yeshiva uh, in the world. Maybe, I don't know, does it exist at YU? I have no idea. That offered a course in... in um, uh, you know, uh, black cinema. I mean, that's um, and and part of that it reflects the attitudes of uh, of of myself 
yourself, Rabbi Dovi Weiss, who was, who was with us, uh, you know, was in the yeshiva at the time. I mean, you know, we, we saw this as a, a need to be addressed. When I used to go recruiting uh, for the yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, um, and speak at various yeshivas, I, I can't tell you that, uh, you know, they would look at the, at the uh, brochure that we had. And in our brochure, we proudly uh, displayed our teachers, our professors for our afternoon courses, um, a number of whom were African-American. And there were inevitably, and not necessarily in every yeshiva, but I would say one out of every two, somebody would make some sort of joke or comment about the fact that we had African-American uh, uh, professors on our staff, and I would always uh, counter it, and I, I never let it go by. And in my mind, I was always like, you know, I hope you don't apply <laughs> to those kids because because it's it's uh, you know, anyway. But the woman hour day, it's a problem in the time when my children were in yeshivas. I sent them to very Haredi schools when Obama was elected president. Uh, I, my daughter came home at the time. I don't remember how old she was. She was, you know, quite, quite young, but old enough to understand what was going on. And she came home and basically was asking me, uh, you know, her teacher had, had told her basically that, uh, black people are not as smart as white people. And that it's a sign of the decay of America that, that, that they've elected a, a, a black person as a president, because he's obviously not as smart as as white people. And that's I, the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard, especially when you take, let's take the presidents before that. Let's take Clinton out of the uh, equation. You have Reagan, uh, George Herbert Bush, George W. Bush. I, I would, I would uh, suggest that you take the IQ of the two Bushes together, you're still not going to match Obama. I, don't, I, I, I actually don't like Obama for other reasons his arrogance but his brains <laughs> you're probably talking about one of the most intelligent uh exactly whoever sat in that in, in that chair absolutely and I, I i i i'm with you i also did not agree with the number quite a number of his policies um but but the, you know so i took her on the internet and i said oh, look let's see you know and i showed her the uh what was it the harvard law review um, that he was the, uh, uh, you know, the first black editor, and I explained to her what it was and so on. And I said, you know, this is, this is not a publication that's going to choose somebody who's not intelligent. And, and, and then, of course, there was another situation. I was listening to a drusha by some rub who intimated the same thing. So we have a problem in the community about black people, but and in America, and it parallels the, uh, as much as we like to think that we're insulated and we're not influenced by the rest of the world, but let's not kid ourselves. The 60s, the 70s, the 80s, these were times when Black people were represented in media and in the, in, in certainly in our uh, newspapers and media that we were exposed to as being the dangerous people, the bad people, the worst of society, and we were influenced by that. You know, I, um, I, think, I think there's a compliment to that, and that is that in the yeshivas, I was in and, and many of the ones that I taught in in Brooklyn as well there were African-American faces other than the teachers and they usually were the maintenance crew uh, the cooking staff so the there was interaction that occurred but it was it was like an interaction um, uh, in, in a um, patronizing way it's and like, cleaning ladies, that's cleaning right. ladies. Let's that's, not forget that. Yeah, of course. So you knew there were African Americans that were part of the yeshiva world, but who were they? They were the ones that had the lower jobs, and 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 even though 
this boys in yeshiva would never think of addressing the French teacher or the chemistry teacher and calling him, hey, Rufus, hey, Luther, right? They would call him Mr. Miller, Mr. Leffler, whatever their names were, um, uh, Mr. Calvin. That's the way we referred to them. But you know, the ones who worked in the kitchen, the African-Americans who worked in the kitchen, we all called them, you know, by whatever, you know, not with racial epithets, but we treated them as if the age difference didn't mean anything. They, they weren't deservant of the respect of an older person because they were, in a way, just the black folk who, who were working there. And, and, and that, that was reality. I have to tell you, though, again, hearkening back to our shared experience, you know, we have, in many ways, uh, you know, bristled against the fact that you know we were stuck in an urban center where we, we didn't have the advantage of a of a large campus on Mount Wilson Lane or on you know wherever it was that we could bring students to and put them in this sheltered environment. Our 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 school, we brought people into the heart of 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 a of a city that is. A, that is primarily a black city, Newark. And I think one of the things that we were able to do was to actually, uh, when I was teaching and I was teaching about the 1967 riots that changed, because I was teaching sociology, I was teaching about how those riots changed the whole dynamic, not only of Newark, but of the whole Jewish life in New Jersey. Uh, because Newark had been the, the heart of Jewish life and it created this whole suburban flight. And it, 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 so I brought in someone who you know, who used to visit us in the school, who would, um, who would again, I hate saying this, but would shine our shoes, as you know. Uh, and, and, and he would come in, and, coming in with his, with his shoe shine kit. And I said to him, Glenn, would you come and talk to us? about what it was to live through 1967 and when they were shooting in the streets and you could hear you could have heard a pin drop when we brought glenn in to lecture about this was our story and i think that is something which is sorely missing um because the interactions are 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 either the monster that's out there or the, the repressed person who probably doesn't want to lose his job and has to put up with the indignities of how the kids have to speak to him. And we don't necessarily, in our schools, get a chance to really have a, 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 a true dialogue. Yes. And, and so what happens is, uh, and what's going to increasingly happen, is that as the demographics of the world change, and uh, I believe that the demographics are going to continue to change um, in, within the firm world as well, as we have various Bali Chuva and, and so on, as the, as the community grows. There, and so this is becoming a more of an issue. Now, I'm not saying it's just an issue now. I remember, I mean, the issue of uh, race, but also of just being other others, you know, and that's, so that's always in the show. And that's sort of, I think the piece where it gets very difficult. So for example, um, as I've mentioned to you before, I remember 25 years ago when I was a Rebbe in a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. So there was a, uh, a, a student who was different than everyone else. And I've said this to you before, I don't remember whether he was Korean or Chinese and I'm embarrassed 
by the fact that I don't know the difference and I didn't care to know the difference at the time, but he was adopted uh, by a Frum family. And he spoke the last night, you know, before all the students went back to America, he spoke and talked about how hard it was for him growing up in the Frum yeshiva system. And this was not Haredi actually, it was the modern Orthodox uh, system, but I think in the Haredi system, how much it would be even more difficult. Um, and uh, it, was, it was devastating to hear him talk about it, just absolutely devastating. And um, it made a very, very big impression on me. And, and I, I think this is something that, uh, particularly for people of color in the from community, this is becoming more of an issue, more and more of an issue, because if you, you know, pay attention to what they're saying, and nowadays you can pay attention to what individuals are saying. If you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, it comes, and if you're connected with people who are sensitive to these things, it comes across the feed. And I see they are suffering and they are not accepted and they're constantly having to almost like protest their value as a Jew. I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, we have special, I mean, first of all, not all of them are gay rim. And not all of them are right are, are coming from us. Some of them are actually born born Jewish. So, it, but, but we you know we have particular mitzvahs that are supposed to protect gayrim and protect people who are different. I mean, Kigari is a, I mean, we were gayrim ourselves. But this is like fundamental to who we are, and we are seem to be unable to process this in a way that is accepting and welcoming. To people who look different than us, this is a real this is a real problem. Yeah, you know, let me push back just a little bit because thirty years ago or twenty five years ago, I'm not sure when it started to develop, but I would have said that then there was at least an attitude. Again, I call this the Roddenberry effect. You know that there is this idea of post racial. I think there was an attitude that you aren't totally defined by your skin color and by what we would now is called the ultimate race identity and therefore yes you would have to struggle and maybe even perhaps overcompensate uh and, and, you know i i have met a number of of, of african-american gay room um and uh who came from uh you know either or, or a mixed parentage and what i've noticed was their sort of like when I would be involved with them. And, and again, I had my, my own affinity based on my, my, my youth and my background, but I would find that they would be speaking more yeshivish than, than me. Right? In other words, when they would have a conversation, uh, they would make sure that I understood their props, that they weren't just some sort of, you know, aw shucks, master balchuva. They were somebody who could actually talk the talk, you know, and walk the walk even more. Like they were, they were ready to say gishmak and gavaldik and mamish and, 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 and quote rishonim and, and, and sources. And I was happy to hear that, but I knew that that was in a way masking a pain because they felt forced to do that. Um, sort of the way I sometimes feel when I dive in an Oxidisha uh, minion. And, you know, I walk in there and the people look at me, like, I find myself, you know, varfing more Oxidisha tired to them than I normally would for them to know, hey, look, don't, don't judge me. But I think that, 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 that was what was going on. I think now, though, they can't help but be affected by what they're hearing in critical race theory and other places that, oh, you are defined this way. And even though they've been raised Jewish, they want to be Jewish, 
but they are hearing the siren call of what your ultimate identity is and your ultimate identity. Don't start saying that you're half, that you're a bi-rate, that you're a black and white product, but you are black and it doesn't make a difference. And this is, uh, this is part of the world. And that even though you've accepted Judaism or you, you're a from Jew, but this is also part of your identity. And I think they're hearing that message, whether they've been raised in that world or not. I don't think we're immune to it. And I, I, I'm not saying that, that I, I blame them, but I think therefore they're carrying a lot more hurt uh, in their psyche because today than they would have been even 20 years ago. Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And I, I don't, I'm not saying I know the answer to that, but, you know, is, uh, is awareness uh, that, that brings along with it additional hurt necessarily uh, bad? Um, I mean, you know, disillusionment is uncomfortable, but I, I think it's better than illusionment, um, right? Uh, so I, I'm not sure. But I, I also want to point out that, you know, sometimes there's, you know, oh, look, I've been in stores and had people come over to me and ask me if I knew where something was, thinking that I worked there because I was wearing a white shirt and black pants, right? That's happened to me, I would say, maybe a half a dozen to a dozen times in my life, right? Um, but, uh, you know, if you're a Black person and you happen to look a certain way, that's likely to happen 50 to 100 times across a, a, a person's life, right? So just a silly example, but like, you know, if that's only one of the many sort of small things that happen consistently over and over and over uh, to someone, uh, at some point, I think it makes sense to say, hey, wait a minute, there's something, this is, this, you know, what, what do I have to do to, to you know, to, to be recognized as, as, as just a human being? And I guess I, I understand that that, but I bring that example just to show that even on the mundane, simple level of existing, there can be a lot of challenges. So yeah, if you're a black person, a person of color, uh, who walks into a Haredi shul, and uh, you know for the for the uh, you know fiftieth time uh, you're asked what you're doing there, or, or you know, or or where you're from when you live around the corner, or whatever it is. Like at some point, I think it's legitimate to say this is really hard. It's really difficult to carry this. Um, and, and I think it could sometimes even, especially, let's say, if, if in like the case you talked about an adopted child, you can sometimes have a situation where um, the lack of support or the perceived lack of support causes a bifurcation where, yes, I know I'm part of Klau Yisrael, and this is my oil, I love speaking and learning, I love being part of here, but there's another part of me that that isn't satisfied. And in some ways, I need to say part of my identity is part of the black culture, the black world, um, and 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 I think that's something which is is very foreign to us because we feel you know we have this ideal there is no black and white in Judaism. It's all being part of Klal Yisrael. Both of us know that we went into a time machine and we saw the Klal Yisrael who left Mitzrayim. They probably would be you know as Mel Brooks said in. Um, in, in, in Blazing Saddles, they darker than we are, right? You know what I'm saying? They would probably be, you know, closer in terms of their skin tone to the African-Americans that, that are having a hard time than we are, right? We're the ones that, you know, that have been a product of so much um, uh, 
intermarriage and involvement with European communities. So, um, so it is, it is, it is somewhat troubling. Uh, yeah. I, I would say even further. I mean, let, let, let's. I mean, ideally, wouldn't we want our chadarim and the best and brightest and and of our of our Jewish children to be able to have a black kid walk in and who's a from Jew and be accepted without without any question? I mean, w- w- shouldn't that be an ideal? And how is that ideal ever going to be realized if? There are rebbeim and and uh, and people who are running these schools who still are talking who are still are making right. but, but we jokes. but we realize that's what I'm saying we know that the culture out there also is going to promote an idea hey you know we know you're a, a black child who's part of this yeshiva but remember who you are remember there's a part of you that is black and remember that you need to talk about that racial aspect in a stronger way than I think we would have wanted, but I don't know if they can be immune from it. You know, let's, let, let's shift gears just a little bit here because we know we've been talking about America and our experiences. Now, Eretz Yisrael, one of the most beautiful stories, of course, is all the operations that the Israeli government did in bringing uh, Ethiopian Jews, getting them out of there uh, where they were uh, in threat of being massacred by actually other black uh, tribes. Uh, and, and, and again, without getting into the halachic issues, uh, which are which are really intense and interesting about can we accept them as Jews? Do they have to go through conversion? Okay, let's put that on the side for a second. But there there was an incredible outreach to these Africans who were black and Jewish, and we brought them there. We we it was almost a, an espionage uh, affair to secretly spirit them out there, bring them on the wings of eagles, uh, and they in the I guess the 40 years of fiction, and you see it in Israeli Hasbara, you know, the Israeli propaganda, as it's called. Propaganda is, you know, Hasbara propaganda don't seem to be the right translations. You know what I'm saying? But that's what it basically is. It's the, it's the, um, and, and you see, oh, and, and my son, of course, who served in the Israeli army, he had a lot of good friends that were um, of Ethiopian extraction working together, boys and girls in the army together. And you, you do have, at least on that model, a level of perhaps some sort of uh, achievable of moving, uh, uh, moving beyond by having this national identity as a Jew. And it seems like that there's, there's something there that works. Again, I don't live there. I don't know if it's true. I also know that there have been reports that, that, that the Ethiopian Jews have been feeling marginalized and the racism still exists. But Israel does seem to be a little bit different than what's going on here. Well, you know, even if we say that that's 100% true, and um, uh, I don't know, even though I lived there for seven years, uh, I I did not serve in the army, and I I, I don't know. But let's be very clear that that is definitely not happening in the Haredi school system, uh, which is still, uh, which still routinely rejects uh, Svarti Jews from coming in because of the skin color. Uh, so, so you know, even if one parent is Haredi, but if the kids look dark, they have a problem getting into school. Um, and as far as I know, that has not changed. So, um, you know, I'm I'm not so. And on top of that, uh, you know, uh, I'm not even going. We're not even going to go into the idea that you know the army as as the great unifier of of, uh, of Klal Yisrael is definitely not accepted in Haredi theology, um, at least not at this. Uh, not, not in the current uh, day and age. So, uh, you know, I, I think you're right. I think that there are some 
advances. And, and I think also, I want to bring another point here, uh, actually two points I'd like to make. One is, uh, I know you, you slickly changed topics on me before I could say this, but I'm going to go back to it anyway. And that is- You're the guest. Say, You're the guest. I'm just the- <laughs> You sort of slipped in this idea that somehow that they're being influenced by the culture and so on. And I just want to say about that, that when people are hurt over and over and over and over again, and they start making noise about it, to then hold that then against them. It's like, you know, we, we would prefer, we like to think of ourselves as being beyond color. I mean, I know it's not true. We're not actually beyond color. But we like to think of ourselves that way. And why are they bringing this up again and making this a part of their identity and so on? <laughs> hey, if we actually were able to get beyond color, they wouldn't have to bring it up. So blaming them in that sense, which is a common thing that I hear uh, amongst people who like to think of themselves as post-racial uh, is not so simple. But second point is that the line between what is racist and what is just being different is a very difficult line to identify. So for example, on Shabbos, I wear a Bekesha and a big round black hat. And I remember the first time uh, that I spent Shabbos in, um, in a community in Eretz Yisrael that was, uh, you know, for Shabbos, I think I was a guest of the NCSY Kolo during the summer. Is many, many years ago. And I walked into Shul. I was the only person wearing a hat. I was the only person dressed in black. And I was wearing this big... And everybody looked. It felt very, very strange. Everybody was looking at me, obviously. And that makes sense. I look completely different than everybody else in the room. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I have the, the opportunity to leave Efrat and go back to... <laughs> any other place in Yerushalayim and, and where I'm going to be look just like everybody else, right? So, uh, you know, at what point, so let's say you have a, a yeshiva and there's the class full of white children and there's a black child that comes into the class. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that the, this child looks different than the other children is a fact, right? And and the fact that, that other children are going to notice is also a fact, unless... The different, unless what's being modeled to them and their entire, um, it, it, the entire system really makes it normal and, and normalizes. So, you know, a, a very interesting thing for, and this is something that actually I saw one of my kids actually taught me about this, but, you know, you buy your children dolls. Do you buy them a black doll? Very rare, right? Because you don't think of, you know, I'm going to buy my kid's doll, you know, but why not? I mean, wouldn't that be a good way of teaching, of normalizing the fact that different people have different skin colors? I mean, what would be wrong with having a black doll? I mean, it sounds like something silly, but no, actually. No, it isn't at all. And I think yeah. that that's reflected in, in, I actually did get my kids black dolls and I made sure that when we would get books out of the library that I wanted to include stories that had uh, black children as the protagonist of the story, making it normal, making it, yeah, that's just another type. And, and that doesn't mean anything in an essential way. Again, I'm going to push back again. I do believe that the culture out there causes you to feel, hey, I'm in pain, because they keep on telling you you should be in pain. They keep on telling you that you are 
a part of a of of of, of a byproduct of a colonial holocaust that had occurred and and, and, and expansionism and, and and you are whether you realize it or not you have in your genes the, the 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 horrors of the slave trade coursing through you and i think when you keep on hearing that it's hard to be immune and go beyond race but okay but you know let, let me run with your idea for a second um and, and again in many ways it's 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 counter to what we know, which is you get the best person, right? You the best Rebbe, but the, the the best pedagogue, right? But we know that whether it's Narius Roll or any of the yeshivas, whether it's Philly Narius Roll or even Lakewood, the great great yeshiva, um, and 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 or Mir and Eretz Yisrael, the two giants, uh, the two giant yeshivas in 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 the world, are the rabbeim, the teachers based on merit. It, it really isn't, because it's 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 son-in-laws, it's also grandchildren who who are fine people, who are wonderful people, perhaps. But we know that the quality of their teaching, the quality of their mind, is really not the reason why they have that job. They have the job because of a certain family continuance, a certain glorified sense of connectedness to some old generation. But the best people aren't necessarily there. But the yeshivas have decided that value is important. Let's now assume that the yeshivas understand that the value of understanding that a black person can be a teacher, can be a rebbe, can be a tzaddik, can be everything. Where do you get that? You can't drum it into them just through ideas. If they see a living representative of that, that could make a difference to generations of new Geretzedek or African children who are coming to the yeshivas. What I'm suggesting is, and again, it came to me as an idea as we're talking, let's, let's have an inclusive clause in the yeshiva system. The same way there's a, uh, we know the NFL is being racked today again about uh, allegations that that in their system, they're not giving Blacks their role. We should hire, push to hire a Black coach, despite the fact that there might be a white coach who is just as talented and maybe even more, because we need to, to send the message to the larger society, to the players, to the larger society. Maybe what we need to do is send the message by including Black Black teachers, finding them and, and making sure they have a job and putting them in a position where, yeah, he's your Rebbe. He isn't, he isn't the guy who's, who's, who's cleaning the garbage in the kitchen. He's your Rebbe. These are Rebbeim. And, and, and maybe that, I'm sure a search could, should occur. Look, I was very happy to see this rapper. Is Nissen Black is his name, right? Yes. I was very happy to see him sitting with Rechaim Kanievsky. Uh, and Chaim is giving him chizik and telling him, but that is between me and you, and you're a person who knows the music world. That is that's sort of like a curiosity that makes for uh, a, a, like a feel good story, but it's not real. It's not uh, this, right. This, well, it, it's not only not real. He had to move out of Yerushalayim because he couldn't get his children into any school. Right. So and, I mean, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. But but if we work on this. And we have like an inclusivity clause to, to find that, to actually, the same way, like I said, you're going to take the Edim over the bigger Talmud Chacham. 
yes, it's going to be in a certain sense in an aspect of inequity, but it might serve a greater good for yeshivas to have someone on the Anhala of color. And eventually, maybe not our generation, but maybe your children's generation, it, it will be the Gene Roddenberry idea of we're, we're beyond race. What do you think? I think it's an amazing idea. And I've got a great idea for how it should happen and how it will happen more quickly. And that is if the Russian yeshiva took Adams who were of color, <laughs> right? Then, then it would happen much more quickly. <laughs> you wouldn't need a search committee. Because, of course, I have to, let's end today with with, with maybe how far we've come. And and, and I remember there was a, um, in Mir, one of the, the, Shmuel Birman loved him. Uh, I think his name was Rav Morgan. And he was a wonderful uh, Talmud Chalcham. A Geret Zedek. But but he could really learn up a storm. And he was just a great person. Unfortunately, he couldn't find the Shidduch. And, um, I, I don't know if it was the Rosh Hashiva who gave him the Eitzah, but he was given an Eitzah by his friends that he should go to Eretz Yisrael. And when he came to Eretz Yisrael, the people who were thinking about it said, okay, well, what we're going to do is let's send him to the Teimanim. Let's send him to the Teimanim. And, and there, perhaps we can hoodwink one of the Teimani families to say, yeah, look, you know, they, they, they don't be put off by these features. You, 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 you have sort of this, you, you have some similar features yourself. And therefore, really uh, emphasizing that, yeah, we still have uh, the only place for this wonderful Talmud Chacham, Rav Morgan, to fit in was maybe to find a Shidduch in, in the Teimani world where they're blacker anyway than we are. Um, and, you know, I say this as, as, as the proud father-in-law of a, a, a Taimani girl who married my son. Um, and, and, and we are very, so happy. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you that um, uh, at, at the, um, you know, by the Taimanim uh, and by Sfardim in general, the Ofruf is sort of, they don't know about the Ofruf as much. They know about the Shabbat Chatan. So the Shabbat Chatan that was held for my son, was a, a, a complete Taimani Disneyland. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a process where, you know, we heard the, the, the Pshitusa, which of course was the Targum. Um, we had Taimani, in other words, the translation. You would hear the Pasuk translated into Aramaic. We had, it was all Taimani foods. Uh, it, was, it was beautiful. And I remember one of my good friends who was involved in, in, in developing this, stood up and he said, there's one song that needs to be sung here at this wedding celebration. And in his deep voice, his baritone, beautiful voice, he started singing, Am Yisrael Chai. And of course, you know, that's not exactly what you hear in, in the Haredi circles, right? Am Yisrael Chai. He started slow. And I'm, because he says, this wedding is a sign to that. And all of a sudden, you know, he sang and the whole, all the tables stood up. We danced for 15 minutes saying, I'm Yisrochai. I'm Yisrochai because the differences didn't mean a thing. At least we, we can believe that. And I think- Made progress, but it's not something that's addressed directly. It's sort of like, you know, it's one of these things where the progress comes based on what's happening in society. And um, 
you know, you talk about how we're influenced by society and so on and so forth. You know why we're influenced by society? Because we don't grab the bulls by the horns and make real decisions. We just let things happen, right? And when they, when they happen, then we say, oh yeah, we've got to change and we've got to, well, what about getting out in front of this and recognizing the demographics are going to change over the next 20 to 50 years? Let's start sowing the seeds now. I love your plan. I think that Lakewood should take on a black uh, um, Rosh Hashiva um, and, and that would be an amazing statement. And then when Revulsion comes around and gives his big speech about how diverse Lakewood is, it would actually be real. He wa- I once heard him give such a speech. I went over to him afterwards and I, 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 I made a comment. But the, the point is, <laughs> it's not very diverse because they have a couple of Svardim sitting in a corner and they have a couple of Hasidim and whatever. It is. That's not real diversity. The real diversity would be for one of them to ha- take on a black Adam or for them to take on on staff or somebody or a Rosh Chabura, something. It, let's start. You don't necessarily have to start with the Rosh Hashiva. You could start with the Rosh Chabura. Um, I, I don't know if it exists, but if it does exist, it should be touted widely so that we should start dealing with this now before it becomes even more of a problem. Yeah, and of course, really, what, what we're hoping for and what we what I believe in is that once it becomes about the ideas of Torah, whether it's the sugyo or the machshava, then all of the other stuff flitters away. Because in that world of the mind, which is what we're about, it, it becomes incidental. Just like it's incidental that I'm from Memphis and you're from Baltimore, it's incidental that this fellow uh, happens to be Black or had a Black parent because right now, the most essential thing is, is, is what we're talking about, is the fact that together we can study and learn and, and, and imbibe God's ideas within us and become living examples of and, try, and really and having Tveikus to God who is beyond all color and beyond all form. And that's that 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 really is 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 is, is, is what we're hoping can happen. What well, one more? Well, <laughs> uh, I know you want to finish. Well, one more thing. That, that was my out. sermonizing. That's my sermonizing part. I always, <laughs> you know, when I go into sermon mode, that that's this is my. But go ahead. You're the, go ahead. Let, I'll let you comment. sermonize. Last comment, uh, because I've heard this so many times. I think it's important. We have in our tradition. Mamare uh, Chazal uh, and even commentary by the Rishonim and okay. perhaps even Achronim. I was going to bring that up. In other words, the expungement of, of 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 the Rambam and other places where there is this discussion of Kushim and people that are black as something strange, out of it, and less than human. So, what do you want to do with that part, that ugly part of of of, of Chazal? What we do with every other ugly part of Chazal. <laughs> we, we ignore we, it. We ignore it and we marginalize it, but we don't quote it. Right? So why is it that these things are quoted and every single Talmud that I have coming into Yeshiva knows about this thing from Cham and about... The, why, why is that being taught? It's okay. It, for everything that you can find in Chazal, you can always find another, uh, another opinion or and, and many, most times even an opposite opinion. So this is not something, it's not central to Yiddishkeit. Why do we have to teach this? Anyway, I think yes. that's important to mention. I, I agree. And, and put it this way. 
part of Dveikus Hashem is that even with all these aspects that are perhaps, um, I have to be careful here, that are perhaps a product of an earlier time and represent a, a less enlightened approach to what humanity can be or what humanity was, when you're, when you're part of it, you can actually still connect, even though you know the existence of of all that, because the greater thing is still there. So I, 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 I'm not a believer that it should be censored. I don't think that they should be censored. I think that you know, we need to to be mature and understand. Um, and- sure, I, I, I agree with you. I'm not into censorship. I don't think that we should uh, excise... Uh, excise- you know, those pieces from the Rambam the same way I don't believe we should stop publishing Dr. Seuss books, right? I, 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 don't, I don't agree with that at all. But there's a question of what do you emphasize? And if you want to go really further, perhaps if you're learning Rambam and you happen to come across this, it could be a teaching moment and, and a discussion to be had about how the fact of how they're, you know, this, this was, does not seem consistent with the rest of, uh, you know, and and Ke'ilu, we paskin everything like the Rambam, everything the Rambam says. I mean, Yishkai would look very, very different if we actually did. So, you know. Look, again, it's on the table already with misogynistic statements that that are in the Chazal, statements that seem to, and again, you know, I've talked to you about my own personal struggle with this with my own children about how, 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 we, how we handle these things. Um, and, you know, it's easy for us two white guys who are both, both part of a, a, a rabbinic tradition family. You know, my grandfather was also a Rav, and I go back eight generations to Rabbi Yosef Slitzker, and you go back to Rabbi Yosef and beyond. It's easy for us because we are insiders, you know, in a way, despite the fact where we are. So it's easy for us to say, we just love this thing, and, and we are so, in a way, enamored. And in, in, it's like a schmack when we find the... <laughs> the piece that is verboten and we can like shunt it away because we know how stuck we are and we're never going to give up and throw away uh, the, the real tradition. And, and, and it's almost like, yeah, okay, it's there, but we know that we're not going to walk away from Yiddishkeit because of Mechias Amalek. We're not going to walk away from Yiddishkeit because of Hariga Shiva Um But the people that we've been talking about, the ones who are coming now, you're right. Perhaps we should realize that these are minefields that need to be avoided until we get to that nirvana-like place where, okay, there's the vacuous here, and, and and despite this other thing that's floating around. Well, that... <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> we shall see you hopefully now, Rabbi Skase, will be one of our regulars here on on principle, where once again, we can have a freewheeling discussion that some perhaps should make a difference. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.